Welcome to Stock in Development, the podcast where two media strategy nerds dissect what's developing in the world of entertainment. I'm your co-host, Eitan, and I'm joined as always by Carl. Hey, Carl. Hello, Eitan. How are you doing? I'm good, but I'm also kind of sad because our SEO game is about to take a hit. I don't know if you saw, but there is a, a TV series called Stock in Development that is coming out no. next week. Or two weeks from, I think, the 25th, maybe, of July. If you do stock in development in Google, we have, like, the second, the third, and the fourth. But now the first one is, like, IMDb for this series. Okay. All right. What network is this on? I'm, I have the I IMDb up now. I was so angry that I was like, I'm not even going to give the thing. Okay. About. It's crowdfunded. We're good. Oh, we, best case scenario. We can do this. So are we. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> I mean, we are crowdfunded in theory if we actually, you know, got any funding out of this. But yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is a this is a this is an obstacle that we can surmount. Yeah, we wish them the best, of course. We're here for all art. Uh, it's uh, it means it's a good name. And uh yeah, that's that's a bummer of the news to start the day, but now wishing the best to the stocking development team. Now we're going to have to add it to the intro. We're the podcast, not the TV, the crowdfunded TV series. Should we just put like things from the SEO of the TV show into our name? <laughs> how do we, how do we out SEO something that also doesn't seem to be very SEO based on my quick Google? We, we are customer centric, Carl. We yeah. do for the listeners and listeners search for us and then they take us to the top. I guess we could just buy um, ads on Netflix Avod, right? Is that Ooh. how we're going to do this? We could we could join the pitch to even sell them the way it's going. That's true. Very, very true. Anyway, we hope to have uh, an update for you all on what happens with Netflix in the next couple of weeks. But we're not talking Netflix today. Instead, we're talking about other sales that are pending and or failed or whatnot. That was a terrible transition. Let's talk Twitter. <laughs> Yes. So Twitter and Elon Musk has been the topic that we've talked most about without actually talking about. I feel like every time we say like, oh, this happened, but we don't really want to get into it because there is so much. I feel like there is all the things that we don't like about this world are happening there. Like so much about, you know, memes and hubris and blind following and Reddit and weird things. But today it was announced, well, not today, last week it was announced that Elon Musk was stepping away from the Twitter deal. He cited as a reason that he asked Twitter for information about the percentage of accounts that were bots and that Twitter never basically shared this information, so that he was stepping away. Uh, I think I'm sure the funny part for me has always been that his thesis for coming into Twitter has been around fixing Twitter and helping, you know, reach its potential. And... If the deal falls down because he doesn't want to potentially deal with the messes of Twitter, it's it's kind of an interesting uh, irony, if you will. But yeah, what 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 did you think of him uh, stepping away? I, I I wasn't surprised based on him saber rattling about the bots and also the fact that he, he tends to tweet first and investigate later when it comes to a, a lot of decisions he makes. That said, I, I 
something that was very clarifying for me was there was an opinion piece in Bloomberg today. Matt Levine, it's the piece called The Price of Not Buying Twitter, that really helped crystallize what's going on here. He offers a hypothetical, but I'm going to translate the hypothetical to current stock price right now. So, very quickly, the original deal price, Elon was going to pay 54.2, or sorry, 54.20 per of share. Course. Right now, the, sh- the share price is 32.65. It's it's dropped off uh, over the last month and the last few days. But, but overall, it's been sub-40 this whole time. So now that this deal is not going through, if Elon was to pull out right now, obvi- the share price is probably going to drop even further, but let's just use the, the real share price right now. If Elon closed today, the company would be worth $44 billion. Considering he's pulling out, if we go with the market cap right now, the market cap is around $26.5 billion. So that means that there's a deficit between the deal price and the current market cap of $17.5 billion. The problem is that there is a billion-dollar kicker for Twitter if Elon pulls out of the deal, but that's the maximum. Twitter can't actually pursue legal damages of more than $1 billion according to the contract that they signed. So that means that they're left holding the bag of $16.5 billion in market cap value. Even before he officially pulls out, they move on. The the price probably goes down even further than that. So that's a massive deficit that they have to be able to recoup, and they can't recoup that through the legal court system. They can only recoup that through a settlement. So the, the options are they either go to court and they get damages and you get $1 billion. They go to court and he's forced to buy and he pays $44 billion, except that means that now he now Elon Musk owns a co- company that he didn't want to own, that he's also distrustful of, and Elon Musk owns a political mouthpiece. And then the final option is he set, they settle and they get somewhere between the two. So the rational option is to settle here, but Elon also doesn't seem like the person that would want to settle when he can get away with paying a billion dollars. So there's not a lot of recourse for Twitter here, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, especially sad for the employees of Twitter because, uh, you know, Twitter was both kind of forced into this situation because it was a relatively hostile Mm -hmm. at the beginning then they accepted it very quickly they have kind of all of their challenge going with uh um you know jack being kind of a a semi a co-ceo at the same time for twitter and for square the board new engineering background ceo and dealing with kind of just a, a difficult hand and then not they also not going through the process probably as well as it could have been and what ends up staying in the dust is well i guess both the employees and and the consumers which is the sad part but um yeah i guess another this is another iteration of the the topic we talk about without actually talking about <laughs> because yeah. we say like we're not doing a deep dive there's probably as much time as we're going to spend maybe a, a minute more i don't think it's worth doing a deep dive there's far smarter people with far better analysis out there on this but it is worth talking about because it just shows how strange these M&A deals can be. If you dig mm-hmm. into this article, there's also a lot of fascinating details, like uh, given the current loan rate, the 
banks that are securing $13 billion in financing are probably going to lose money if the deal goes through for, e- for Elon, in terms of if the deal goes through on him acquiring it. So the banks are now incentivized to want the deal to fall flat too. Uh, also, I think the most interesting nugget in there beyond the financial analysis is that Elon's point about there being bo- bots, if there are a significant number of bots on Twitter that actually is a good thing for him because if he comes in, takes the reins and truly just kills all bots on the platform, that means that the, the ARPU is higher because the revenue is going to remain the same for Twitter, but the number of users is going to go down. So Twitter is actually making more money per user than previously thought. So therefore it's a better business than previously thought. So just lots of interesting stuff buried in here. I highly recommend it, but seems like Twitter's just not in a good position. And yeah, the employees and shareholders are left holding the bag. These employees thought they were going to have a cash payday of more than they ever dreamed for their stock. And now looks like they might not have anything. Yeah. I think the part for me, and I, I'm guessing also for you, is that Twitter is probably our favorite, you know, not only social media, but probably the yeah. app in our phones that we spend the most time on. Yep. And it's one that really, truly has never reached its potential. And I feel like it's also misunderstood. I was seeing, you know, some analysis done online and it's like, oh, yeah, the biggest worry here is that only 5% of active accounts tweeted in the last, whatever, three weeks. And I was like, I don't see that as that's as an issue because Twitter is not a social media like Facebook is. Twitter is more of a content than social media like what like YouTube is. People go here to read content and to engage with it in different that are different than posting. You like, you retweet, or you just read. And it can be incredibly valuable. And that the it has like the valuable action and the job to be done for customers is not necessarily posting. And that's perfectly fine. And I think the moment and I think they know internally, but there is still so much features and so much value that could be created for customers if if they focus that energy into those types of features and business models. Uh, that are truly not around that type of like very active engagement that some other companies uh, try to follow. Yeah. But yeah, anyway. Speaking of viewers and speaking of subscribers, we wanted to touch on very quickly, I don't know if you saw this, but um, you and I have talked about, I think, let let me do a check. Is HBO Max still kind of your favorite streamer as of today, July 11th? It is my favorite streamer, though that said, I must admit that I am actually churning out this month on HBO Max, just because we've been watching lots of Mad Men on Blu-ray and not a lot of HBO content, so we're going to save 15 bucks for the next few months until we want HBO stuff. But my favorite, I think the, that and Disney Plus are the two like killer apps in terms of streaming services right now. Fantastic. I, I think for me, it's also up there. Right now, it's also the one that I'm using the most because I'm watching the West Wing. But it's also just generally very good. They refresh the UI, on at least on the TV. And it, it, it it's better. It's it's coming on its own. I significantly disagree because they refreshed it on... I mean, you're using Android TV, right? Yeah, Google TV. Is yeah, not even sorry, Android sorry, sorry, sorry. There sorry, are two sorry, different yes. ones. Yeah. I'm using Apple TV. Okay. And the search is now so laggy that I will have typed four keystrokes into the, the keyboard or even just in Siri search with it. 
and it will respond to something from four keystrokes ago. So the UI is worse for me, but I didn't tell that they did a refresh because it was so much worse. Anyway, well, we, for we digress. Me, yeah, 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 we digress. But anyway, when HBO Max was first launched, you and I talked about how it was probably one of the biggest kind of botched launches, not only in streaming, but like in tech products and consumer-facing products generally, mostly because of Warner Media's and AT&T's inability to come to a deal with Roku and Amazon. Basically over distribution, just agreeing on, you know, the fees that need to be paid because HBO Max doesn't own, a, you know, a hardware um, that they could use. And Amazon specifically has this interesting um, kind of distribution model that also, I think it's only Amazon and Apple, right, that have it, which I'll call channels. And basically what this means is that instead of just going into any of these hardware devices, your Roku, your Apple TV, your Amazon, your Chromecast, and opening the HBO Max app, you actually, you know, you log in into Amazon Prime or you log in into Apple TV. And within it, you can basically buy all of these services as add-ons. So basically what this means is that uh, there is even a, another level of rupture that happens within that. For consumers, it can make things easier. Everything goes through one system. You pay kind of monthly either just to Amazon or just to Apple and you keep track of everything. HBO Max, one of the reasons why they couldn't reach a deal was because they didn't want to be a part of Amazon channels anymore. When they reached a deal, they only reached a deal to have the app. So you in your Amazon Fire, you can see HBO Max, but HBO Max basically left the Amazon channels. And they lost, at the time, 5 million subscribers that they had in HBO Now, which you know just converted to be um, HBO Max. Thesis from HBO Max perspective, they wanted to have kind of direct access to the customer, understand all of the data, manage all of the experience, and everything that comes with that. What they gave away was 5 million subscribers. Mm-hmm. Today, Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg, how this, he called it a scooplet, not a scoop, that HBO Max is actually in conversations with Amazon to go back and be part again of uh, the Amazon, the Amazon Prime channels. So quick correction, it is far beyond Amazon and Apple, pretty much every hardware platform that has a software, I mean, every hardware platform has a software component, but Roku, Samsung, Comcast's X1 platform, pretty much everyone has some sort of channels marketplace in terms of, oh, wow. of this. But it does become very tricky to discern whether people are subscribing through channel partners or through app store partners. And re- regardless, these... It got me. Yes. <laughs> these CTV partners just want to get their 30 to 30% somewhere. And there are lots of options to do that. And yeah, the, the HBO Max launch, we proclaimed as botched, as did many people when it launched, because they didn't have this channel integration. And HBO Max didn't make nice with Roku. They didn't make nice with Amazon. And it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me not because I think HBO Max is struggling, but more because they're trying to look for easy levers for growth. And honestly, the shareholders have probably forgotten that it's not available on Amazon channels and this is an easy pipeline to growth. And it's also, to me, what it says is, Zaslav and the Discovery Warner leadership 
are, sorry, Warner Discovery, got that backwards, leadership are looking for new growth avenues as they are being divorced from AT&T and from a, a legacy telecom company. And they're looking to establish relationships beyond those that were ruined by AT&T. So it doesn't surprise me. I don't think it's since any signals whether or not HBO is doing well or not, but it is interesting as a marker of where HBO is going from now. Yeah, I, I think I, I don't think I have anything else to add. I think that's exactly right. I think this truly comes down from a year ago this week in the Sun Valley conference. Saslav said, hey, we're not done. There's going to be another deal down the line. Even us buying something, something or somebody buying us. And somebody was again this weekend. And this is kind of a perfect type of activity that a company that is looking to get acquired would do. You change from proving to your own stakeholders the growth that you're going to have and the strategic positioning that you're going to get. And you change into making your numbers look better, both in terms of revenue and reach and customers. And like you mentioned, this is a pretty... Seems to be kind of a pretty easy win. Of course, of those 5 million, many might already be subscribers, but like just very quick rule of thumbs, let's say 4 million dollars, 4 million subscribers come back at 15, at $15 a month. That is $60 million a month, which is 720 million a year. Take away, let's say from these, like, I think these channels are a little bit less than 30, but so directionally 85%, that's 612 million. Yeah. That it's almost 10% of the revenue from what direct-to-consumer um, HBO Max was. So excluding Discovery, the last one, the last time that they reported with AT&T. 10% bump in revenue seems, you know, pretty pretty healthy. Uh, uh, Lucas also reported that they're trying to figure out a level of data sharing so that HBO Max still has a little bit of information about what is being seen by customers uh but yeah i think that's exactly right uh luca show and julia alexander tweeted about it and that was my reaction like this could be surprising because it was unexpected but it's actually super reasonable and it was just not unexpected because i like the way you said it maybe people forgot this makes a lot of sense i've been using this this is my second time using this term today but the data argument to me is also saber rattling i don't really think the viewership data is what matters but that's what everyone keeps pitching in these negotiations what does matter is the conversion pipeline and acquisition data so looking at how many people thought about watching a piece of hbo content or something on hbo max and ultimately got so far down the purchase funnel and ultimately either converted to purchasing the channel or not purchasing the channel I think that is really important product data that is obscured in these channels' models and these UIs. But I, I don't think the customer discovery data in terms of content is really what's at stake here from obscuring it with a, an extra la- layer of UI and partnership on top of it. Yeah, there's, there's, it's been a while since we have an episode where we disagreed with each other. In this one, I do disagree with each Okay. Because of ads. HBO Max is introducing their ad supported tier in the next couple of months. And they that data they do need. Kind of who watched and a little bit of attribution, at least, would be very important for HBO Max to kind of manage their that that version. But on on, on the the metrics that you mentioned, I agree. For and they're showing how just getting the revenue and just getting this makes it better. 
makes can it worth it. Sorry. Can you purchase AVOD plans through the channel partnerships? I don't think you can. I don't see how HBO Max would agree with that. You can't do yeah. Hulu? You can only do no ads Hulu? Yeah, I'm pretty sure you can only do no ads Hulu and Paramount Plus based on a cursory Google search while you were responding to me just now. Pretty sure you can't. Well, and I, I hear your my... point about ads, and yes, that, that drives ads preferences, but based on the what you just said earlier, you're saying that it doesn't really matter because they're probably not going to see a massive bump from a channel partnership, considering that some people have probably already converted over just to paying for HBO Max directly. So but that's the difference. Ads, you don't sell by that type of channel. You sell holistically. Right. You but, sell by... But at the same time, I think a, an ads-driven consumer is not de- going to demographically match up with a consumer that's purchasing through Amazon Prime Video as their primary per- point of purchase in terms of like no, but financial that kills, demographics. That, but that kills the advertiser. If you tell, hey, I can measure how your ad performed only 90% of my of my inventory because the other 10% is behind Amazon's paywall. But, but, the, but the AVOD inventory is not behind the paywall. If the AVOD inventory is we not behind the paywall... I don't know. What I was going to say is my, what I think is going to happen is that what they're agreeing to is they're going to be able to sell ads. Okay. We will research this further. I, this, no, no. Even, even if today, like, I trust you that today they you can't buy ads in HBO Max, I think this is an interesting bellwether, which is like, yeah, Hulu... Is not growing like that, and they care, and they don't matter. HBO Max is coming with a very... We are making our numbers look better. AVOD is a huge part of that, and that's basically where we're doing it, because we're the most expensive, I think, tied with Netflix. Yeah. And I, my guess is if they are going this way, that's the what they're negotiating. It's, hey, we get information from ads, Amazon, you get 15% of the channels so that you can sell it. I, I, I don't see a path to selling are. ad inventory through... Amazon Prime though. Like I I see I don't see Amazon foregoing their ad platform that they're powering IMDb TV with in in any way. I I I don't see it, this being a point of negotiation at all. I see these all these companies walking away and saying we will do our own AVOD platform outside of your platform. You can have access to the SVOD sales. We'll take that channel partnership. But I I really don't see Amazon bending at all on who sells what ad inventory besides we will sell Amazon ads on any Amazon channel and no AVOD partner is going to agree to that. Wait, I, but that would only happen if it's everything is shown through the through Prime. That's not how it works though, is it? It depends on the partner. Um, for Roku, like there's a, no way that... For they Roku, that's how it works. And the, for Comcast, that's also how it works. You find the handmade still in like a non Hulu UI. You do. Wow, that's insane. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure then, that's uh, how. I don't think that's not how Apple runs, but Apple also just has App Store integrations too. This is where it gets all messy, as too. Is this an App Store yeah, subscription? Yeah, a lot of levels. Or is this yeah. a channel subscription? Yeah, I still think there is a way to do it. They just I, have to agree on the on the revenue share. Yeah, and I, I just don't see like to HBO Max. To, to HBO Max, if they wanna there. to HBO Max, if they wanna make this work, I'm sure they're very happy to say Amazon. You wanna sell? Sell. Yeah. You have to let me know what you sell, and you have to give me whatever 80 percent of the code because it's my inventory. Yeah. 
You think Amazon's going to negotiate, gonna be a cool though? One. They're not going to negotiate. They're going to just walk away. They already walked away once. I don't think so. Okay. HBO Max walked away. Well, we don't know who walked away. But somebody, somebody is letting each other do it. I think both of these companies are going to be so stubborn in the quality of their product that they're going to walk away. So we'll see how it plays out. You're right. That's this is the one. first time we've significantly dis- disagreed and no, yeah, ever. this, this be might fun. be the most contentious discussion we've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not even and it's not even that contentious. Uh, yeah, we'll see. I think Amazon definitely. I agree with you. Amazon yeah. definitely has the leverage here. And I, I think this is also the the specific thing based on our two career experiences that leads us to have significant disagreements here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. Uh, but it, it all comes from our shared perspective that ads are super important and they both would be trying to keep it to keep that from themselves and even HBO Max willing to give out give away the the customer experience in exchange to have that so yeah we'll see Luca Shaw tell us more we will tell see what else you find we are going to transition to our last topic but real quick I would like to segue through the box office just because last weekend we were I think shouting from the rooftops that Minions was going to continue dominating, and they did not. Minions dropped off from 123 the previous weekend to, which was a holiday weekend, to 46 million this weekend, whereas Thor came in with a healthy 144, so better than Minions. So it looks like the MCU films, our, our kind of hypothesis on maybe these are just going to make less and less money and have a longer tail on Disney+. Plus. This one might buck the trend, even though reviews are fairly mixed on it. But MCU stands aren't really looking for reviews. Yeah, yeah, that's not going to happen. Um, but yeah, maybe we forgot about Thor. Very bad at predicting next week's box office, uh, where past performance are is not necessarily a, a prediction for what's going to happen in the future. Um, but yeah, our last episode, we just wanted to touch very briefly, because this is... This is a, a corner of themed entertainment that we haven't really spoke, I think, with each other about. So I'm curious for your thoughts. And and that is Cruises. Specifically, Disney announced, well, not mm-hmm. they didn't announce, but the Disney Wish, which was announced three years ago in D23, at least the name, in 2019. It, um, it held its first couple of voyages. And it looks like Disney... I don't know if you've seen a lot of it, but the Disney Cruise Line has always talked about it being cruising with a touch of Disney. This looks like a Disney theme park that happens to be on a cruise. Like, the dining experiences look great. They, of course, don't have that many rides. But, like, I mean, I know I'm objectively what the person that they're trying to cater to wants and if I have a family. But, like, this looks, it looks great. I don't know if you've seen, you've seen some of it. I have not seen much. I remember this was in the works and it's been deprioritized from a lot of press engagement for the last few years just because the cruise market has been a little harder to pitch investors on (laughs) than in Mm -hmm. previous years. Does it surprise me though? Uh, The Galactic Star Cruiser at Walt Disney World I think points to engagement opportunities on sea that they are testing on land with the Star Wars theming. 
they also have, I think, I've never been on a Disney cruise. Have you? I haven't. No. Okay. My perception of them is they're kind of more stuck in the Eisner era than anything else. Not in terms of the design, but in terms of, it just seems like a nice, pleasant time on the sea with your favorite characters as opposed to the Iger or Chapek era of we, you must have maximum engagement with every one of our content verticals at all times. And that's what that's this how seems this looks to be. Like. Yeah, that's what yeah. this looks like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the state rooms, I think even you just watch the, the photo comparison between the state rooms or the... Like there is three dining halls. One is like Frozen themed. One is Marvel themed. And one is, I think, Cinderella? I, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, it. I mean, it looks great. I, another interesting thing is that I think at least for the first year, if not the first two years... It's only doing three and four night cruises out of Port Canaveral in Florida. So it's really almost like an extension from, from your family trip. You go to the, the parks for a couple of days and then you do here for three days. Of course, I mean, I have done a couple of cruises. My family, yeah. they love, especially with when my grandparents started getting older, it was like a very nice experience too. Mm -hmm. Everyone is on the same place. Everyone can hang out. Nobody has a reason to go. And even though the activities, of course... I think that's a part of that I'm curious for your thoughts of cruises generally. To me, it feels kind of like a theme park. It is this thing where there are a lot of activities that you can do. Of course, it doesn't have rides, but it does have that kind of enclosed kind of, you know, excitement of let's try to figure things out and it has unlimited food and it feels good. And, it, it, and there is a difference, I think, between the ones in like Europe where you take them as a way of transportation because yeah. you spend most of the day exploring the cities, Adela and I did one even that spent the night in Istanbul so that you could be two days in the city and you, you just go back to the cruise to sleep. While these ones in the Caribbean are very much spend the day here. We're going to our piece of land. Disney bought a piece of uh, Bermuda Island or the Bahamas Island. They call mm -hmm. it for a lighthouse point. And you go down and it's all themed. And then you go back and it's all about that experience. And... Like you mentioned, with everything that's happening over the last couple of years, I don't know where I would go to a cruise. There are other types of vacations that I enjoy over a cruise. But where do you stand on them? Do you see, have you been on a cruise? Do you see yourself going on a cruise? Do you see their appeal? Do you just value other things, at least at this point of your life? I have never been on a cruise. I'm not anti-cruise. I just haven't been on one. And I think growing up, so many of our vacations were either like road trips or going to see family in the Northeast. So therefore that doesn't necessarily end up meaning cruise. I do see the appeal of the all-inclusive nature of it, especially if you're just looking to hang out somewhere. Like if you're just looking to go on a vacation and hang out in the hotel and eat food and have good drinks, I see the appeal of a cruise there. So I, I have no issues with a cruise. I would like to do one at some point. Like an Alaskan cruise sounds fun. Or some of these, mm -hmm. some of the higher class cruises than a Caribbean cruise sound good. And even then, like even if I did a Caribbean cruise, I would do a, a Royal Caribbean or one of these like kind of a little higher end cruises as opposed to something that's very family friendly. But that's just kind of, if I'm looking for a relaxing vacation, I'm not looking to be around family. And I think there are yeah. there are better vacations for your buck if you do have a family where you can kind of scale it down a little bit more in price. 
Yeah. If you ever want to do that, let's talk because I think Disney cruises are higher class than Royal Caribbean. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Royal Caribbean, are, are, they're very nice. I, no. I've been on a couple. They they are the ones that are splurging on like a zip line and a exactly. surfing, whatever, and a slide. But they are a little bit more... Eh, the word is not vanilla, just, you know, right. mass market. They have 30 whatever cruises. Disney has five. Yeah, they're not... They but, have, it's the first one they make in a decade. And it, and it looks and feels nicer. The, again, this one is more themed. I think the old ones even look more upscale, but... Anyway, yeah, we can talk about this. So I have an AUA for you based off of this. Okay. How does having a flagship luxury cruise liner that is a vastly different experience and a vastly different era of Disney impact the overall cruise brand and satisfaction with lesser cruises? Can you break that down a little bit more for me? Yeah. So if you have one ship that is this flagship experience that's a little bit closer to Galactic Star Cruiser. Oh. And you have four ships that are stuck in the late thousands in terms of the amenities and the experience and the Disney-ishness. Why would people want to go on the older cruises slash how would they be satisfied by them? Got it. That is a great question. Uh, that usually our AUAs are more for our personal opinions more than analysis of these things. But I think specifically for Disney, it's interesting because it is the first time that they can actually, well, they're doing it more and more, but they can discriminate in prices and experiences based on this. Yeah. For some of the other cruise lines, it's kind of a very natural way of being like, yeah, some of the older ones, they become, they go to other types of destinations, maybe the Alaskas, maybe the Europe's. They, they don't really... They're not built to be like, yeah, you're going to be 24-7 on the boat. Mm-hmm. And that's what you want. And the type of people that are looking for them, that experience is different enough that they feel comfortable that that those can be differentiated. The ones that go in the Mediterranean are significantly smaller. The ones that go into the North Sea to like Sweden and Amsterdam and Copenhagen are also a little bit different. And, and you can kind of see it. You go to the Royal Caribbean website, the, the cruises, the ships are categorized by classes and if you see the newest classes the biggest they're all in the caribbean they're all in the caribbean because they're all about this and as you start going to the back you start seeing the new england in canada in alaska in south america in europe in the middle east in asia and and even even within a company that has a very specific brand you can see that difference it's not only that the ones that are in europe are super upscale for europeans and the royal caribbeans are in the caribbean yeah. You can actually see that. And it's something that Disney doesn't really do at this level. They usually p- price discriminate with like fast pass or a meal or a restaurant. It's yeah. not like, oh, if you want the nice ones, you go to the Magic Kingdom. If you want the bad one, you go to Hollywood Studios. Like, it's not like that, right? They cost right. the same. Yeah. Experience is the same. But yeah. It's a good yeah, question. that makes sense. And that, yeah, you're right. That is price discrimination based off of experience level as opposed to amenities or ease of access it, that's yeah yeah that's an interesting direction but i think i think the galactic star cruiser is kind of that as a test ground testing ground anyway on land that it is using the infrastructure and 
I think, itinerary building experience of the cruise lines, but applying it to the Disney hotels, which have always been price discriminated. The fanciest yeah. hotels, the hotels closest to parks, the clo- the hotels with the True. easiest access True. to transportation, our favorite topic in Walt Disney World, <laughs> are the more expensive ex- hotels. Whereas the cheaper hotels are further out, worse amenities, and you have to take the bus line, and you might even have to do a transfer. So it makes sense that they would start experimenting with it in reverse towards the cruise lines themselves. Yeah. The other thing is they that you just end up having so many degrees of freedom that you can tweak. You can go from three-day itineraries to 11 or 14 yeah. or 20. You can change the time of the year. You can change the location. You can change it stops in a place every day versus it doesn't stop. And it allows you to play with that in a way, yeah, like you mentioned, where the Galactic Star Grocery is likely going to be three day, two nights for the foreseeable future. And when they change it, it might just be like four nights or a night, as opposed to you can just use it as an hotel and not pay for the experience. Well, hey, as long as I can get a $5,000 cocktail at sea, I'll be happy. Oh, yeah, you mentioned it. I know. I know we have to go. But yes, yeah, there is a $5,000 cocktail at the Disney Wish. <sighs> Kill me. Okay, well, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that another time. But until then, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you next week. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.